You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A $2.4 million grant from the Navy will enable the University of Hawaii to develop and advance technologies to protect ocean and freshwater environments. Funding will be used to launch three new programs this year, something called Hacking for X, Patents to Products, and Faculty Fellows. They'll give faculty and students training that will directly strengthen the state's economy and workforce. Vasilis Sirmos is the university's vice president for research and innovation. He sat down with the conversations Russell Subiano this morning to talk about how the school's research impacts the state. Protecting both freshwater and the ocean are very important to our state. Can you talk about how the money will be used to accomplish these goals? The main goal of this grant, like other grants, is actually to translate the ideas that are created in in our laboratories into marketplace technologies that actually benefit our lives and society. So on this particular one, uh, we're going to have three-pronged approach. And these three programs are the Hack for X, and I'll go in detail about those. It is the patents to product program, and then is a faculty fellow program. So the grant is structured, if you will, according or around these three programs. So the Hack for Defend of the Hack for X program is a program that started like two, three years ago at the university. We started an SIS Hack for Defense. And the main concept of the program is we develop a topic, whether this is health, this environment, the oceans, and then we invite students, faculty, postgraduate, postdoctoral researchers to submit ideas of how they can solve these issues, let's say if it is environment, how they can solve climate resilience or sea level rise on our coastline uh, with some new technologies. So we get a lot of those, we go through those, we have an iterative method, and then we get the best ideas and we put them forward. So this is an exercise or a program that is very well received, not only here at the university, but the community. We open that in the community as well. So this spring, we're going to have Hack for the Environment. So if your listeners are interested, then they should look at our website and, and participate in the program. Last spring, we had Hack for Oceans. And then next year, we're going to have Hack for Health. So that's one part of the grant. And the other part of the grant is the patents to products. What we mean with that is a lot of the research we do here at the university takes place in a lot of of laboratories. And a lot of our postdoctoral students and a lot of our graduate students work in these labs. So we want to engage them in order not only to do a fundamental world-class fundamental research, but also engage them to a business fluency and see if those ideas can translate to products. And the third, which is pretty dear to me, is the faculty fellow program. And that is a program that is designed to inject innovation entrepreneurship into the curriculum of the university and, and not just to be outside as a topic, but actually be integrated in the general education curriculum of the university. It is a novel idea. And we think that if we engage the faculty to do this, this is going to be extremely successful, not only here at the University of Hawaii, but nationwide. When the average person thinks of university research, names like MIT and Caltech usually come to mind. But in the academic world, UH is known for its pioneering research and fields like oceanography, astronomy. Can you talk more about the research and innovation coming out of the university? What is something the average person may be surprised to know about UH's research? As you said, the University of Hawaii is actually a premier institution when it comes to research in the fields you mentioned. So some of the programs that we have that actually are world-renowned and people can easily relate to them. For example, last year we received a $25 million grant from DARPA, from a defense agency for research projects. 
And this has to do with the construction of artificial coral reefs for, to protect coastal erosion. This is a, a project that has impact on our reefs and our uh, coastal areas. This is a collaboration between the School of Ocean Earth Science and Technology, which is probably one of the best in the country, and the Applied Research Lab at UH System. Another area that we're extremely well known is on natural resource management and conservation. It makes absolute sense. This is a unique environment we live in. We receive tens of millions of dollars every year to protect endangered species and, and study best practices. And lastly, I want to say that we also are a premier institution when it comes to alternative energy. This is an island community. Our Hawaii National Energy Institute receives tens of millions of dollars from the Navy to conduct not only research in alternative energy, but actually study how you take technology in these areas and you insert them into the power grid, which is sometimes more difficult than technology itself. I know that the university has been recently designated as a National Science Foundation Innovation Core Hub, which, among other things, enables the university to help identify, develop, and support research that can generate economic value. I know that the university received nearly half a billion dollars in extramural awards in fiscal year 2021, and I know that some of that money has gone to help over 130 startup businesses during that same fiscal year. Can you talk about how the NSF designation and external investment helps turn the research that UH does into revenue for the state, into jobs for people living here? This is such a great question. Uh, let me first start a little bit more general. As you said, we received more than half a billion dollars in extramural funding or in contracts and grants to execute research for mostly for the federal government, some for the state and some for private businesses. So this money is actually coming from outside the state. Most of that money is coming outside of the state. So we're not recycling money within the, the state economy. But most importantly, what it does, it employs thousands of people in science and technology jobs, which are high paying jobs. And they are quite premier uh, institutions involved with us into these projects. The university is the largest science and technology employer in the state. And we actually generate, according to you here, for every dollar we bring in, uh, we put like six, seven dollars. It has a multiplier of six, seven dollars into the economy. But beyond that, uh, the NSF I Corps designation, it is a big deal, if you will, because it provides the university the ability to participate in programs designed by the National Science Foundation and their new technology and innovation division and train faculty, train students into entrepreneurship and innovation. And we are a hub with, uh, in the Pacific, and we are really excited with this opportunity. It's very exciting, especially when you think about how UH research plays into the state economy. Is there an example that you can think of that has come about recently through research done at UH that has ended up in like a tangible or, or some sort of visual product or, or something that, that people would be familiar with? One of the things that in our state everybody knows and is concerned is actually coastal erosion due to sea level rise and climate change. So the university through the School of Ocean Earth Science and Technology and our Sea Grant program has provided uh, policies, has provided research in order to help the state address the issues of that coastal erosion going forward and make decisions of how we can protect our shorelines. This is an ongoing effort right now, and there are going to be some really hard decisions, and UAH is in the forefront of that. Another one that we're very proud of is our ability to provide Research that facilitates the integration of alternative technologies in the grid here in the state. 
because not only you need to generate clean energy, but how you actually introduce it into the grid is as important in order to avoid any type of instabilities. So the Hawaii National Energy Institute works with HECO, works with the Hawaii State Energy Office to address these issues and these problems. And as it comes up, you're going to see other alternatives like hydrogen is a, is a big one that has been talked about. So battery technology, we install batteries in, in large military bases as well. So, so it's, these are some of those. And I could go on the health side where we have personalized medicine and there you truly see the impact of our research touching lives of our people. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Russell. That was Vasilis Siros, the UH Vice President for Research and Innovation, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. We'll have links to the programs that UH is launching this year on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Brian Thomas Swim, author of Cosmogenesis. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how the story of the universe has direct impact on the story of our personal lives. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from BAMP Project. Bluegrass folk band Trampled by Turtles with Tavana performs January 13th on Oahu and January 15th on Maui. Tickets at bampproject.com and at mauiarts.org. The latest push to get gaming legalized in the islands is raising eyebrows. HPR's Casey Harlow joins us in the studio this morning to talk about that. Good morning. Good morning, yes. Uh, so earlier this week, Representatives uh, John Mizuno and Daniel Holt were uh, one of the few lawmakers that have uh, held these press conferences to just basically promote some of the things that they're going to be proposing in the legislative session this upcoming session. And gambling, gaming, is once again coming back to the legislative session, but uh, they're going to be legalizing gambling to just a, an extent. This measure is still being drafted ahead of next week's opening day, and expected revenues from this proposal is uh, earmarked for the Department of Hawaiian Homelands and uh, law enforcement efforts and things like that, but uh, it seems like a majority of it will go to DHHL to help cut down on that wait list. And here's John Mizuno, and this was kind of the explanation that he gave. Poker is actually legal in the state of Hawaii. We can have a poker game right now and bet, and that would be illegal, we wouldn't go to jail. What makes it illegal is the, the rake or a, a cut. The reason we need the cut on a poker table room is because that cut will end up ensuring funds to DHHL to get our people that are waitlisted into a home and a lot. And so, again, under their proposal, it would be a poker room or betting parlor. Uh, they gave estimates of it would be the size of a 24-hour fitness, uh, maybe 10, 10 to 20 tables. Uh, and But no slot machines or anything like that, no gaming machines? Yeah, exactly. So how it was explained to me uh, was that it is poker is a game of skill not a game of chance, and slots and craps are a game of chance. And so that is the key difference that they're trying to make and the key argument that they're going to say is a little bit different. Also spoke with Eric Lonnie Ford, who is a supporter and kind of co-author of this bill. He's the president of Rise Hawaii Gaming, says this model is uh, similar to South Dakota's gaming rooms. He estimates that, you know, this would generate between 400 and 800 million dollars annually, could provide up between 500 and 1500 jobs in five years if it is expanded statewide. A lot of estimates, a lot of what ifs uh, with that one. Uh, those estimates for the revenues is based on Hawaii residents going to Las Vegas and losing, spending and losing that kind of money. 
also there was questions about you know regulations uh, about who would oversee this, and this measure would create a gaming commission in itself, which would then also require a lot of state funding and things like that. You know how who could apply for a license for this one, and Mr. Ford also does have a record and has ad- has um, admitted that. This is what he had to say when answering about who could apply to become a, a licensee for this gaming room. This is open to anybody. So anybody that fits this criteria, which we're going to propose on the bill on the third Wednesday, it can be on the Big Island, it can be on Maui, Kauai. The structure is where we're fine-tuning it, but we're almost done with it. We'll have it ready to go soon. Have to be local, have to be born in Hawaii, have to be a 35-year resident in Hawaii to go for this license. So nothing, though, about whether you have a criminal past, if you're a convicted felon. I mean, that's just kind of open-ended there. And so uh, Mr. Ford uh, responded to that question, and he said uh, maybe maybe sifting out tax evaders, uh, someone who's been charged with tax evasion, those people would be disqualified. But again, these are all details that are still being finalized. I'm assuming they have to do a lot of dancing with this one because of a past measures that have been introduced in the session and have been shot down year after year after year. Last year, more more notably, there was a Senate Bill 2608 or House Bill 1962, which would give DHHL $500,000 to conduct a gaming study, uh, seeing if they could do a casino on DHHL land. Uh, obviously, there are some restrictions and some things put uh, in the way of doing something like that. There was also House Bill 1820, which proposed the construction of a casino in Waikiki. All those, you know, got assigned committees, but never got heard. Uh, And there was a lot of discussions about that. Representative Holt says this measure would address several key community issues. This is an opportunity to address a few issues we have in our community. Um, you know, kind of two birds with one stone kind of thing. It, as HPD has testified, we have 70 to 100 game rooms in operation at any time on Oahu. So there's obviously an appetite for people to want to game somewhere. Um, these game rooms are unregulated. They often have to do with drugs and prostitution as well. So by, you know, having a legal avenue for these people to express their willingness to you know, play these poker games. Um, we're going to get the tax revenue, and we're also planning on giving some to um, enforcement. We don't have any gambling addiction mitigation currently. We don't have any um, of those types of things. So we would be setting setting some of the tax revenue towards that. Uh, Representative Holt says one of the main things that would prevent someone from spending their last dollar is that there will be an entry fee and also measures to ensure that you know people entering are okay so uh, i imagine though we're going to be hearing uh, quite a bit from the coalition against legalized gaming here in hawaii uh, you know just because eric has served time for setting up an illegal gaming operation so that that's definitely uh, going to raise some questions for sure, and uh, we'll have to wait to see what happens and what's in the this draft of a bill on black and white paper. All right. Okay. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking to Casey Harlow. Uh, check out the stories on this issue at hawaiipublicradio.org. A reality check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the rail project and a revolving door of sorts on the heartboard. Reporter Marcel Andre on the line today. Hi, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Happy almost Aloha Friday. <laughs> yes. It's been a long week. <laughs> uh, but gosh, heart, uh, explain to our listeners the situation here. Right. So there's this this deep ongoing rift between state leaders and city leaders regarding the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation Board. It's a board made up of community volunteers and government officials, and there's disagreements over how it is supposed to function and even who is actually legally a member on this board, these very kind of complex uh, legal disagreements between the city and the state. So you take that dysfunction, frankly, and you add to the fact that the city council and the mayor keep poaching state appointees, their their non-voting appointees, 
to the heart board in order to use them to fill the city's own vacancies to that board uh, for their members, which are actual voting members. And there's this has happened at least four times in the past several years, and it's about to happen a fifth time, and it's basically irking the leadership in the state legislature. Uh, House Speaker Scott Psyche told me, quote, I refuse to be Hart's recruitment officer. I mean, it's, it's starting to grate him, basically, that they keep recruiting these folks, which are really hard to find, to find volunteers that are willing to take all this time out of their schedule uh, for free to focus on a project that has had all sorts of issues. Uh, and, that, you know, his seats basically keep getting poached off by the city. Yeah. And the latest one, Robert Yu, I mean, he used to be the chief financial officer at heart. <laughs> right. He's, he's actually a really good find. I mean, he uh, is the current president of the company that manages the bus and the handy van for the city. He's got a, an extensive transit background uh, in Honolulu. Uh, he is a former Hart CEO who really was, was in that position when they were trying to put together a recovery plan. He's very familiar with the ins and outs of the project and, and Hart itself. Uh, and and yeah, he's he was appointed in June by Psyche and the legislature in a in a House appointed seat to to sit in now as a, as a board member and keep eyes and ears and keep tabs on the project for the state. And within months now, uh, he is basically being nominated by the city council chair Tommy Waters to to fill a vacancy that's been there for basically a year. Uh, since the last person held this voting seat that the city council is responsible for. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Waters is calling it crucial that, that Robert, you uh, be in this. But again, it's, it's a question of you know, the, how many people are out there, how many people are willing to do that. And uh, the city has uh, city leaders, whether that's the mayor or the city council, they really have kind of leaned on basically taking who's in these legislative seats, seeing if they're willing uh, to basically move into a voting seat. And, and that's how they've been filling so many of their appointments. Right. I mean, uh, you's qualifications aren't really an issue. I mean, you'd want him to have more power because, uh, you know, he sees both sides. And at the same time, uh, you know, you, you can kind of see where a psyche's uh, coming from as well. Uh, you know, and, and how does this affect like quorum? You know, because that was an issue that they dealt with before. Yeah, the there's these vacancies, and and the the article really runs it down. But mm-hmm. the the vacancies really have impacted at times uh, the board's ability to get things done. It has hamstrung them in in terms of of passing uh, business items and and action items. So uh, yeah, it really this it's just a chronicle of of all the woes with the board and. You know, the, the bigger issue here is, you know, these, these are angst. This is real angst over these these smaller details uh, that that impact a relationship uh, that could be really important in the future for rail between the city and the state. If they're coming back and talking about more funding, you know, and how we actually get the get the thing all the way to Alamoana Center or even points beyond. If this is your starting point where they are really not on the same page and they're just all the, there's all this dysfunction regarding the board. That's just not a great starting point, and ideally, you want them to be more yeah. on the same page. Yeah, we don't we don't need that. Um, it's our train. <laughs> I mean, you want checks and balances, but at the same time, we hope that yeah, uh, some of this doesn't get in the way of the big stuff. But thank you so much, Marcel. Sure thing. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's reality check. You can read the full story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kaka'ako Makai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com. Today on The Daily, Christopher Flavel on how the way California dealt with its water in the past has made today's flooding worse and amounts to a missed opportunity for the future of California's water crisis. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today 
on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. If there are seahorse whisperers, well, Kona is where you might find them. The Ocean Rider Seahorse Farm and Seahorse Foundation at the Natural Energy Laboratory has been around for two and a half decades. The clean, cool, deep ocean waters are key to rearing seahorses, everything from the native species as well as the unusual leafy sea dragons. This marks 10 years uh, since Sea Rider has offered tours of the facility, which boasts 25 species of mystical and enchanting creatures. It is one of the most popular eco-tours at the facility for visitors interested in marine conservation and science. Take a listen. So out in the wild, seahorses live on average between five and seven years. Here on the farm, we've had some seahorses reach their 18th birthday. Seahorses reach sexual maturity at one year old. So that means we've had some seahorses barefoot and pregnant for 17 years of their life. You know, we spent time with Carol Kozishmar, one of the co-founders who considers the facility a live gene bank. She starts talking about the Hawaii native species first. We have two species of seahorses here, a hippocampus halonis and hippocampus fisheri. We breed both of these here. They're in the quarantine part of our farm in the back for biosecurity reasons. What we do with those animals is we breed them and then we put the offspring back into the ocean. That's actually part of our Seahorse Hawaii Foundation. So it brings in revenue to the foundation and it's called Adopt the Seahorse Program. So the Hawaiian species go right back into the ocean. We don't sell them as pets. In fact, we don't sell most of our species as pets. We only trade them with other aquariums so they don't need to go to the wild to get seahorses. But our aquarium here is 100% sustainable. Everything you see in the aquarium is hand raised here on the farm. And of all the species we have, which right now is about 25, we only sell one species as pets to the pet trade. And which is? Hippocampus erectus, which is the American seahorse from the East Coast. Why Kona for a seahorse farm? I mean, you know, it's blazing hot, and I guess the seahorse is kind of like the shade. (laughs) Well, you know, my career started in Molokai in 1984. It was my first job out of college. I ran a shrimp hatchery. So Hawaii has always been my home, and I did work a while in South America, but my goal was always to come back home, and we need good, clean water, and Nelha provides good, clean water. You basically just turn a valve and you get oceanic water. So it's a logical place to have a farm. We have a kind of a niche market, so we don't require a lot of labor. Our animals are picked up by FedEx every day and carried to the mainland for the pet trade. So we don't have to sell to wholesalers. We can just sell direct. So we can keep our footprint relatively small so we can afford to be here. Is there any species that's a little more tricky than others to raise? Yes, many species are extremely tricky. The Hawaiian pelagic seahorse, which is hippocampus fisheri, is probably the most difficult. And the reason for that is because the fry are so tiny that their mouths are so tiny, they need a tiny baby copepod. And they're also very susceptible to gas bubble disease, so it's hard to keep them under the water eating. So they're very difficult to raise. Do we have any estimates as to, you know, how many we've got out there, or, you know, are they way up on the threatened and, you know, almost near extinct well, list? Or globally, what? the seahorse is considered to be an endangered species. They are listed on CITES Appendix 2 which means you can't trade the animals outside of your borders. So they're all highly threatened, and the main reason they're threatened is because of the medicine trade. The medicine trade takes hundreds of millions out per year, and they dry them and put them in their tea. So that's a big problem for the world because as we create more marine protected areas which protect the seahorse, once a population is established, uh, those that uh, harvest for the medicine trade will come in and just swipe them all and off they go. So that's the main reason that they're threatened, but also there's habitat destruction from just, you know, building on the ocean, (laughs) building in estuaries where we shouldn't be. Uh, The declination of seagrass beds, you know, they're just declining around the world. And coral reefs are being hard hit by lots of pressures, mostly overfishing and runoff. There's also fishing for shrimp. The shrimp trawlers will trawl the bottom of the ocean and the bycatch is often seahorses. So those are kind of the three main things that impact the population of seahorses. 
Is there anybody that is studying, let's say the seahorses out in the wild, I don't know, Papahanaumokuakea, or you know, what do you know? I don't know of anybody. Actually, they're really hard to find. They hide very well. I know there's a good population in Hilo Bay, probably because the water's not real clear, it's hard to see them, so people don't take them out. But it's surprising where, you know, I've seen them, where I know where they live, and some of that water is what you might think is degraded water, but they seem to be thriving. Well, if there's food in the water, they're going to be there. So they eat tiny crustacea, tiny shrimp, tiny copepods. And some of these, you know, freshwater runoffs provide the area with a lot of nutrients and shrimp, tiny shrimp. So that's why they're there. We have right now three pairs and they're breeding and we have a group that we're bringing through a production run. So we hope to get those back in the ocean probably in about six months. I was fortunate to see one in the wild. I had a Christmas wish and I just said, yeah, that would be wonderful if I could see it in the wild. That's all I really want. And then lo and behold, Christmas Eve, I went no swimming, you know, and, uh, and there it was. And I would visit it, you know, uh, and yeah, it yeah, was pretty cool. Very rewarding, isn't it? Yeah, they tend not to move around. They tend to stay in one spot. So once you know where there's one, you can go visit them. Um, just don't tell too many people because somebody might come grab it. <laughs> yeah. um, well, what is it about seahorses that, I don't know, you've, you've built your whole career around it, but you know, what was the first one that you saw? Uh, the first one that I saw was actually in a beach in Ecuador and they were being harvested for the medicine trade. So there were people collecting hundreds of them and they had them in a bucket without water and they were drying them to take to the medicine market. So that was kind of heartbreaking to see that. But they've always been a magical animal to me, just, you know, the way that their biology is so extraordinary. You know, head like a horse, tail like a monkey, pouch like a kangaroo, eyes like a chameleon. You know, they're just so cool to look at. And the body mechanics, you know, when they swim, I mean, you know, when the little, the little uh, fins flapping in the back. Yeah, I mean. kind of like a hummingbird in the water, you know. So they're, they're beautiful animals. They're kind of like, in some ways, like a Van Gogh painting. You know, they're just beautiful. And everyone is different. I mean, do you see the nuances, the personalities? <laughs> uh, they definitely have personalities, for sure. They're very interested in their tank mates, so to speak, or the group that they hang out with. And if you introduce a new animal to their group, they notice, they recognize that. And when people come here to hold a seahorse, sometimes they're more receptive than other times. They seem to get a relationship with people. Sometimes they do get one and sometimes they don't. We hear a lot about biosecurity and you want to you know, make sure that they're protected, but there's all kinds of stuff out there. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, in the ocean, the biosecurity risks are, are minimal because they're so spread out. They're not in a dense area and not a lot you know, are together. So here on our farm, our biosecurity is very strict. We keep our animals at very low densities and we have very many different sections of the farm where the animals that are just brought in are kept away from the other ones that have been here for 25 years. But we don't go back to the wild to get anything. We bring them in once and that's it. They're all bred here on the farm. And so we don't have disease problems because we're not going to the wild bringing stuff in. Okay, but people traipsing through here. And yeah, everybody has to wash up to their arms. They're not allowed to go to any other aqua facility before they come here. And they can't touch anything until they hold a seahorse at the end of the tour. Is there a type of seahorse that you'd like to get your hands on here? A different type of species maybe? I don't well, know. Well, for us, I guess the holy grail is the leafy sea dragons and they come from southern Australia. And the way that works is, is the Australian government gives one person one permit once a year to bring in one pregnant male. So that male might have 50 eggs on his tail. And of those 50 eggs, maybe 30 will hatch into baby sea dragons. And he will sell those to the aquariums around the world, including us. So we get you know, some, and we've had a pair here that lasted 14 years. And every month she would drop her eggs but she never got the eggs on the tail of the male. So we're still trying to figure out how to get these animals to breed in captivity to kind of protect the wild population. But everybody is working on it at the same time. So part of our mission in our tours is to educate the public, which are you know mostly visitors, about protecting our ocean here in Hawaii and getting people to understand how they can make a difference even back home in California. And how can they do that? Well, one way is to protect the runoff or prevent the runoff from going into our oceans because that's a huge problem. Sewage, industrial, and agricultural runoff is a huge problem. And here in Hawaii, it's a problem too. 
so we hope to educate everybody about that. We also hope to educate people about improving and expanding our marine protected areas. So the fish have a place to breed where they're safe. <laughs> and we also are heavily involved in marine education, both here and places like Fiji and Tonga. And anything more you want to add about the uh, Seahorse Foundation? Yeah, our Seahorse Hawaii Foundation is set up so people can be a part of what we do. And our for-profit wing adds quite a bit of money to the foundation. And the foundation is basically set up to uh, collect some of these conservation species like the leafy sea dragons and the Hawaiian species, um, breed them and either put them back in the ocean or trade them with other aquariums so they can display them without having to go to the ocean to get them. That was Carol Kozishmar of the Ocean Rider Seahorse Farm in Kona. The facility is located at the Natural Energy Laboratory on the island of Hawaii and offers tours Monday through Friday. Kozishmar believes the state has aquaculture rules on the books that have not been updated in 30 years. Uh, the company says that regulations prevent it from bringing in shrimp as feed for certain species of seahorses that it would like to raise. The latest statistics from the Department of Agriculture show that aquaculture contributed close to $80 million to Hawaii's economy in 2021, and those numbers have been trending upward. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. For women who date men, the pursuit of pleasure isn't just personal. It's also a centuries-old political struggle. You're this modern woman who deserves pleasure, and yet there's so many factors that makes that not the case, from misogyny to internalized shame. Author Nona Willis-Aronowitz on her book, Bad Sex. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care, island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. Darian Shuji is an award-winning author from the Big Island who's compiled a collection of essays about being a woman of color. The recently released anthology is entitled Non-White and Woman, 131 Micro-Essays on Being in the World. The conversation Stephanie Hahn had a chance to speak with Shuji about the writing life. I was at the time working a lot in what I call micro-narratives or micro-essays, which is 250 to 300 words or less. And so I sort of proposed, well, what do you think about doing this anthology in a micro format, which would allow us to include more voices? And he loved the idea. I read Allegiance. I also read your poetry chapbook, Other Small Histories. Both were fantastic. I believe that this short narrative form seems to really be your forte. I was wondering if you could go into this a bit. You know, my background is actually as a novelist. I have several novels out, so I'm really used to working in this longer form. And anybody who knows me knows that I can be very, I always have a lot to say. <laughs> so, you know, this idea of working in a smaller form and a much less a micro form is something that honestly would not have occurred to me had it not just sort of fallen into my lap. And what happened was that I was trying to tell these stories about the women in my matrilineal line. They were complicated, but they were also, there's a lot of missing information. And I was really having a hard time trying to wrangle what I felt like was the truth of what happened in our family, and also just trying to give these women their own voices. I came across this idea of maybe I'll just start really small and just not put the pressure on, on myself in trying to write something just long and, and thorough. I had been reading different kinds of poetry and micro works and flash type pieces and I settled on this form and I started to use it. To my surprise, I found myself able to get to the heart of what I wanted to say much sooner. I could really sort of find the pulse of the piece and it also let me really work on the line level in terms of working with the lyric and crafting my sentences in a way that really resonated with me. 
that was kind of it. I ended up, instead of writing this huge book about my family history on my mom's side, I ended up with this poetry chapbook that has 32 narratives of the women in my family going back to my great-great-grandmother. That felt really fulfilling and complete, even though they're all in micro. I got a very clear depiction of each character's story in that really short form. So I was really amazed by how that form can really work in terms of narrative. It's actually hard to write short. You know, I think it's actually easier for us to do the backstory and talk around something. And I think when you know that you only have so much space, I like to call them containers, when you have a smaller container, you're really very deliberate about what you choose to put into it. And I think that really helps you make what would otherwise be maybe difficult or challenging creative choices about what to say and what not to say. It just helps you get to what matters most quickly. <laughs> Great. And it's good for the reader too. You know, the reader can really get a lot out of a very, very short piece of work, which I think is also really powerful to the form itself. Is there a particular piece that might stand out and really speak to local life here in Hawaii? We have a really nice representation I think from writers who are from Hawaii or who live in Hawaii, and one of my favorite pieces is a piece by Christiana Kahakawila, Brown Baby, which really talks about, it talks about identity and it talks about race and color and, and family and really how do we take care of ourselves and how do we take care of the people we love and how do we identify, you know, are we too much this or too much that and so that's beautiful and that piece is even shorter than right. <laughs> 250 words I think it clocks in probably right around 175-ish um, I can't remember offhand so you know there's a lot of ground you can cover and she did a really beautiful job with that piece as an author you write across the genres from poetry to fiction to nonfiction. But I also want to say that you've demonstrated mastery over these forms. It's not that you're simply dabbling in these forms. I want to know a little bit about which form you now prefer and how this has evolved over the years. Well, thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate that. You know, I think no matter how long you've been doing this, I think you always have days where you just feel like a complete hack. You know, like, what am I doing? <laughs> None of this is any good. And, and so on, and I think there is probably a little bit of creative tension that always encourages you to find out more about your own creative work, how you want to tell stories or how you want to express yourself. And you know, reading has always been the first place. So I should really share that. I mean, reading has been the reason that I, I'm a writer today. And it's a reason I think I've been able to try these different genres and have some success in them because I really understand words, you know, and I know what works for me. I know what resonates with me, and I really try to honor that. I love fiction. There's nothing more delicious than being able to curl up with a good book, literally. <laughs> for me, I love that. That was one of the great things about COVID for me was all of the reading I could do without guilt, uh, without trying to have all these other competing things. But, you know, I got my MFA at 50, and that was a really big moment for me because I'd already been published, but that was sort of where I really pivoted into poetry and creative nonfiction. I've started on a novel again, you know, creative nonfiction essays, uh, many memoirs, poetry, that's a form that just for some reason, I don't know if it's my age or what it is, it really resonates with me in terms of both the language, um, how succinct it is, and I think just the authentic storytelling, the true stories, that just feels really important to me right now. It's interesting. I'm wondering if that's an exposure of self that you're willing to now venture into at this point in your life. Wow, that's really astute, because I was actually having a conversation about that um, with my mentor yesterday. I still have a mentor who, you know, chimes in every now and then and kind of tries to nudge me and point me. And I am in a place where seeing myself on the page in different ways is not as scary as it used to be, either that or I just am just too tired to, <laughs> to do anything else about it. I'm like, okay, fine. We'll talk about it. We'll do that. But I feel like everybody has a story. And, you know, we, we like, especially as women, we like to not give our own personal stories a lot of credence or attention. I, you know, I'm really trying to change that for myself. And I have a daughter. I want it to be different for her, too. I think just really honoring our voice and being able to see our own words on the page uh, can make a really big difference. Yeah, I love that. So how does your role as an instructor of writing and your amplification of voices of marginalized BIPOC women, how does this affect your project? 
I'm very fascinated by this aspect where your writing seems to be going. Yeah, you know, I think especially when you start off as a fiction writer, it's so insular, at least it was for me. You know, I'm creating these worlds in my mind. I'm getting it down on the page. I'm not really part of a larger community in terms of where I'm getting ideas from or, you know, whether or not I'm tossing ideas around. But we also think a lot of this has to do with what's happening, you know, politically around the country um, and in the world. It just is making me pay attention in a way that feels really important if I want to be present. And being present is something I'm really working on, I think, much more deliberately. I think wanting to be a literary citizen in the way that, you know, I'm recognizing that there are people who didn't or are unable to share their stories in the way I've been lucky enough to be able to do that. So really wanting to support some of those voices getting out there. And just in general, I don't even care if someone gets published or not. I just want to help people tell their stories women especially, and to have them not be afraid to explore that part of themselves and to not hide that part away from themselves. And that just feels like really kind of where the world's going right now. And I just want to play my part in that and making sure that it's, I love writing for fiction. I love entertainment and I love all of that, but it really feels a little bit more urgent for me right now, making sure that everybody gets seen in a way that feels true for them. As a mom, you're a mom to three kids. You even homeschooled your kids for a while. I'm interested in knowing, as I'm sure a lot of writers who have families, how does family life, how does your ohana affect your creative life? How does that work together? It's really hard. And, you know, I think that was a hard thing for me when I was first starting out was I wasn't hearing anybody really talk about how hard it was. Everybody found a way, and it was, you know, this this really interesting balance that other people seem to strike that I I never feel like I kind of got that. I always felt like I've, I've been kind of um, hobbling along and trying to honor my creative self and tell my stories and have enough writing time. But really, you know, you have all these real life day-to-day responsibilities and they don't go away and then there's surprises and so on. You know, at the same time, I will say that had I not have had so many stresses kind of going on and demands going on, I actually may not have written because I do have a tendency to get in my own way. And when I knew I only had X amount of time to write, I made it work. And then I didn't have time to obsess about it and get in my own way. I just did my best once it was polished off to send it out. And I just had to move on to the next thing. I didn't have enough time to overthink anything. So in a way, having that family, even though it was difficult, also I think helped me get the work done faster and let it go in an easier way than if I just had, I did take a year off before I had a family to write a book and I generally don't recommend that for a lot of people. I think being in the world is really important in whatever way the world comes to you, family or work or friends or whatnot. I think it's important for writers to be in the world. And so I was definitely in the world with my family and it wasn't easy, but at the same time, it probably was a thing that kept me writing and also kept me hungry. You know, I was always ready to go back to the page family is a type of deadline then yeah right (laughs) i have to get this on the page before i get something else or take you here it's true yeah no i think it really is true and you know and of course both as a fiction writer and as a poet you're going to see things that you know your relationship that you have with your family is probably one of the best ways for you to have a mirror to yourself right to see yourself to develop your own self-awareness you see how you're in relationship with these people who are with you every day if you're willing to use that as sort of a training ground, it's helpful. It's not easy, and sometimes it's painful, but you know, I can honestly say that a lot of what I've gone through, even the hardest stuff, is all something that has helped me become a better writer in some way. We think of New York as the epicenter of U.S. publishing. So what does it mean to write from here in Hawaii? I mean, here you are in the Big Island. The 21st century is also the Pacific century. So Mm. is there something that we in Hawaii as writers can offer in terms of vision, in terms of style, theme, genre that can pivot the lens towards how we see, not necessarily us mimicking what is on the other side of the nation? 
writing in Hawaii has really been a godsend in the sense that I feel like I don't have the same kind of noise that is always happening on the mainland in terms of, you know, what to write about or what you need to do for your writing career and what everybody else is doing and so forth. It is definitely quieter for me here. So that has been really helpful from that perspective. I just feel like anybody who has something that they're excited or they feel like is important that they want to write about, they should do that first. I feel like you, know, you do that first and then you can kind of see, is there a place for it or is there a way that it can serve? And if so, then roll it out. You know, I think that even though New York is far away, I think that's actually one of the best things for us that it's so far away. You know, I've only really been writing as a career and publishing since I've lived out here. It wasn't like I wrote and published on the mainland and then moved to Hawaii. It's all happened from here. Finally, any last words of advice for women in particular who are writing out there? I would say to make sure that you're always reading and reading reading women writers. So I think reading and then just really trying to commit to some kind of writing practice. Find stuff that you love and just keep writing. That was Darian Shu G discussing her latest project, Non-White and Women, 131 Micro-Essays on Being in the World. She spoke with HPR Stephanie Hahn. Look for links about uh, G's work on our website later today. That's it for us today. Up tomorrow, we close out Climate Week and hear from the Deputy Energy Secretary who's in town for a conference. Got questions about something you've heard? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you want to listen back to something you heard? Find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.